Hello, hello. Welcome, everyone, to another episode of Zero. Excited to be underway with season four. Again, the theme is focusing on climate change uh, and the state of climate science. And particularly, this is spurred by the most recent synthesis report that was released by the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change. And uh, been very excited to be able to interview and have a number of professors and scientists from all around the world give their perspective who were authors of these of these many reports that are very important, very influential in terms of how we address uh, climate change policy moving forward, both on adaptation uh, and mitigation as well, as well as understanding the physical science. So uh, thanks for following along. In particular, I'm very excited to bring you Professor Mark Howden today. Uh, super excited. He is the director of the Australian National University Institute for Climate energy and disaster solutions, uh, as well as being an honorary professor at Melbourne University. Uh, he is currently the vice chair uh, for working group two of the IPCC, and we'll talk at length about his involvement in this past cycle, uh, as well as uh, he's worked on contributing to significant uh, several major national and international science and policy advisory bodies uh, Mark has worked on climate variability, and we're going to talk about that as well on climate change, as well as innovation and adoption issues for pretty much over 30 years uh, across industry, community, and policy groups. And one theme that will really come up is the systems approach that has been fundamental to some of the work that he's been doing. So really uh, informative episode, and I uh, hope you enjoy. Thanks. Yeah, it's re really interesting. So systems approaches have been around for a long, long time and originally starting, I think, in engineering and engineering process design. And and the fundamental idea there is you, you um, set out to understand the system of interest. So that means you have to actually put a boundary around the thing that you're dealing with. So it's not endless. Um, you actually have to sort of focus in on something. And, and then you understand the components of that uh, and the interrelationships between those components uh, and then through that understanding, then you can start to uh, look at how to leverage that system into particular states that we as humans uh, are interested in. And so, um, so it's the idea about, uh, you know, taking understanding into action is the fundamental part, I think, of systems as, as I tend to use them anyway. Right. And then I'm just thinking from the perspective of, of, of climate or from such a big boundary, you know, how, how do you go about actually establishing these boundaries and understanding what are the parameters to evaluate? Well, it, again, it depends on what you're dealing with. So, so yes, the climate can be dealt with as, as an earth system sort of problem. Um, uh, but oftentimes we're focused on much smaller scale of management units, if you think of it like that. So um, a farmer may be interested in something uh, that, uh, you know, some opportunities for his or her farm. Um, or it may be someone's uh, looking to develop a, a new building and, and having it sort of climate appropriate building. So in both of those cases, uh, you, can, you can see that there's a systems boundary which is defined by both the point of interest, the thing of interest, um, but also the opportunities for management intervention. So, so your system is a combination of some of those things or the system that we're interested in. So usually we have something like, uh, you know, climate change and coastal defences or climate change and biodiversity conservation you know, or climate change and water resources. So the water resources is the system of interest, you know, this particular catchment or this particular dam. Uh, and, and then you look at how climate may impact on that. And also from a systems point of view, how that thing may impact on climate, um, because we want to understand both of those flows, how greenhouse gas emissions can be generated by that system and how interventions in that system can change those greenhouse gas emissions. Amazing. Yeah. And I think it makes sense to be able to set uh, or at least a focus and set a, a tight boundary, as you mentioned, either a building or a coastal area or, or, or kind of a farm. I do want to delve in. I know you've spent a lot of effort uh, over the decades on understanding how food systems and how f the, the importance of food security and then the risks associated with the cl uh, variable climate and changing climate. Can you just speak a little bit about the work that you've, you've delved into in this area? 
So even in the absence of climate change, we'd still have a whole range of challenges in front of us in relation to food security. Uh, um, there's growing populations and growing demand because people have changing and often increasing demands for food. Um, so we, we're tending to say, produce more beef out of feedlots rather than just through grass-fed beef as one example. Um, we also have, unfortunately, in many cases, uh, increased degradation of our agricultural system. So soil quality is, is being uh, de degraded by erosional forces or reduction in soil carbon and nitrogen and similar things. Uh, we also have incursions of a whole range of problems, such as uh, various pests and diseases uh, and weeds in many cases. And so each of these causes problems for agricultural systems. Uh, and then we have a changing uh, institutional environment where um, the changing policies and rules and regulations are, are causing changes to our various systems, often for good reasons. And so even in the absence of climate change, we'd have a complex system to deal with and one which would have trouble, I think, keeping pace with uh, the rates of increased demand for food across the globe. Now, when we're adding climate change, um, we see um, this as actually significantly increasing. So clearly, we've had historically climate variability from El Nino and La Nina type influences, and we've found ways of managing that risk, that variability, the ups and downs of our agriculture, including through, for example, trade. International trade is a great way of evening up the bumps and lumps of food production in various places. But when we start to throw in climate change, it means that a lot of our systems that we've dealt with, um, these challenges before, are now being challenged themselves. So, for example, climate variability is actually increasing and changing um, as a function of climate change. And so our old rules in terms of risk and risk management are now becoming out of date because of climate change. Uh, we're seeing changes in uh, rainfall uh, seasonality, rainfall amounts, um, temperatures, uh, heat stress in animals. Uh, sea level rise in some places is a significant challenge for agriculture and fisheries um, and you know, a whole range of other factors. And so when we start to look at the in impact of all of those existing stresses plus um, climate change, we're starting to see cracks appearing in the systems. And, and as one example of the scale of these changes is that a relatively recent study sort of looked at taking out the improved management and technology that we've seen in our agricultural systems. Um, so think of improved crop varieties. Um, and then looking at the climate residual. So whether um, that would have gone up or down in the absence of our, our improvements in you know, management and technology. And across the globe broadly, um, there's a really, really big impact. So the number they came up with it was we'd probably about be about 21% better off in terms of agricultural productivity across the globe than we currently are because of, and that's reduction in performance is because of climate change. Um, and that's of course unevenly spread. So some places like Canada and the old USSR are actually benefited by climate change in terms of ag productivity but many parts of the world, Central America, big parts of Africa, Southeast Asia, um, are quite negatively impacted by climate change. And so that's what's already happening. And the really fearsome prospect is what might happen over the next decades because of increased temperatures and cha further changes in rainfall um, if we don't get on top of climate change. Yeah, and that's fascinating. I mean, I think it's just, just in one what you just described, there's so many different influences, whether it's rainfall, temperature, land use, uh, in one just food system. And even historically, when you have a, a variable climate that is now, that data that we've been gathering over decades and centuries is now changing and, and we're now entering an increasingly in certain period. How do we, how do we, what, in your research, how have you found, how do we, how do we support these, these organizations, these individuals, these communities that are trying to grow food? How does that happen? And, and one of the important things there is, is food is a must. You know, like uh, if we think of sort of Maslow's hierarchy of needs, you know, going from the absolute needs to the, to the wants and the luxury items. So food is right at the bottom of that hierarchy. It's, it's the fundamental foundation uh, elements within us. So we need food, water, shelter, uh, critical factors for human survival. 
Um, and so, so it's not an option. We, we have to produce adequate food of adequate type um, for, for human survival. And so um, what we really need to think about is um, a whole range of things around that. You know, so we need to find ways of, of managing food production um, wherever we are, and, and that's across the huge range of different situations that occur across the globe. And, and importantly, the point you raise is uh, that how effective are our past approaches to dealing with um, climate variability in the face of climate change? And, and unfortunately, when we look at the analyses, is that um, we're now almost outside the operating envelope of risk um, that we previously occupied in many parts of the world in terms of agriculture. So, so the old sort of rules of thumb um, are now not only not applicable, but in many situations, they actually may be dragging you back. They may be increasing your risk and decreasing your productivity and profitability. And so one of the key messages here is to update um, what you do and how you do it. And so that is sometimes a responsibility of the, of the individual farmer or farm organisation, because many farms are now owned by corporations in some countries. And, uh, and that means um, updating the knowledge, updating the technologies, updating the management practices. And to support that, oftentimes we need government-supported research and development, um, but also industry-supported research and development and transfer of that information out to the farming community and farming businesses and agribusinesses, but also information transferred back the other way. So farmers and agribusinesses saying, hey, I've got an unprecedented problem. Can you help me sort this out? Or maybe I see an opportunity emerging here, um, but we haven't got the tools in place to actually achieve that and to make that real. Um, can you help us out? So there's a role for governments in terms of providing information and research and development and the overall institutional frameworks and the rules and regulations and policies, which ensures that you know, agriculture doesn't make problematic environmental decisions or social decisions and things like that. Um, so we can actually move ahead in sensible and informed and equitable ways. Yeah, and then, the, I mean, that's funny that you mentioned we're leaving this envelope of, of space of where we've been operating and, and the thought of going into this kind of new uncertain frontiers is, is first thought was is kind of scary actually you know we the fact that we're kind of going to this new you know eyes eyes shut in some ways because of the climate that's uh, is is changing um so, and so obviously it requires a lot of different updates as you just mentioned whether it's from the business community whether it's from the from the uh government whether it's from research and development all communicating um do you see, I mean, that the, having those updates seems like a challenge in and of itself to be able to update and keep abreast of the changes as it's happening, right? Because sometimes these, these processes and the, these updates take time. Indeed. And so that's what's really important to look forwards here and to, to actually be thinking very strategically. So thinking about the next, uh, in a decade or two or three, uh, because decisions uh, which are made now sometimes do have long-term consequences. So when we put in infrastructure, often that infrastructure is around for many decades or sometimes centuries and sometimes even millennia. And, uh, you know, thinking Roman roads in Britain, you know, the, the roads are still where the Roman roads are. So, so you know, infrastructure decisions can last a long time. And, um, and so, uh, so we do need to be thinking uh, forwards uh, and we need to be thinking very strategically um, so that we don't go down dead ends. So, so a simple analogy on this one might be, um, if think about yourself driving up a, a winding mountain road that you haven't driven up before uh, and uh, navigating that road only by looking in the rearview mirror. Um, do, you, do you think that's a safe thing to do? Do you think that's a smart thing to do? And I think most people would say no. <laughs> so we do need to look through the windscreen. Uh, we do need to look at what's coming up ahead and take appropriate action. Yeah, that is a good analogy. And I don't think I'd make it up the hill if I was driving. <laughs> and neither would I. Um, and I think that's a good point. You know, looking looking through the windshield, if we take that analogy, one thing we also need to be aware of, and I'm impressed if you could kind of speak to your background in this, is overlaying this of understanding that we need to, let's just keep the analogy for food, that there's a greenhouse gas component as well. And there's a framework with which we need to uh, view this uh, food production system, even though it is obviously at the base of our needs. 
how do we ensure that these updates also account for a reduction in greenhouse gases? <clears throat> it's a really good point, Shane. So when we look across our food systems, the best estimate is that there are about 29% of our greenhouse gas emissions. So that's a, a, the whole of chain, not just the on-farm emission component. And so that's roughly speaking the same as our electricity systems. So if you, if you look globally, those numbers are very equivalent. In Australia, those numbers are very equivalent. So, so it's a, a very non-trivial contributor <clears throat> to, um, to, to climate change through greenhouse gas emissions. So, so clearly we need to be thinking um, about ways to reduce those, those greenhouse gas emissions, but also to account for those greenhouse gas emissions. So we have um, you know, good accounting and transparency so we can make good decisions about emission reductions. So, so one of the things, of course, there is we, we need to be pretty smart about this. And, and there's a whole area of work called climate smart agriculture, which is about you know, how do we adapt to the variable and changing climate? Uh, how do we reduce our greenhouse gas emissions? And, and how do we move into more sustainable agricultural practices with you know, environmental and social, uh, socially appropriate practices, I guess? And, and that, that means you have to think much more broadly. It's no longer about you know, crop physiology. It's about... Uh, whole of system management, and that system can include, you know, local employment or, uh, you know, nitrogen leakage into waterways or uh, biodiversity losses on farm and things like that. And so uh, it requires a, a lot more sophisticated thinking. It requires an enlargement of that system that we started out this conversation. So, so our concept of what the system is is actually bigger than it used to be. Absolutely, yeah, and. Um... It, it there, I'm just like thinking about all the different factors to think about that you just alluded to. Are there any, can you give particular examples on, and I know you, you mentioned nutrient runoff, you mentioned biodiversity and employment. Are you, have you found uh, through your research or in partnerships, certain practices that are effective or can you give certain examples? Yeah, so, so one example would be um, in Australia, but also more broadly is that a lot of uh, farmers who uh, have, have used to be high input farming. So, you know, lots of fertilizer, lots of mechanized activity uh, are looking to reduce those inputs. And, and in part, that's because of environmental concerns. In some cases, sometimes it's just financial risk and risk management. Sometimes it's because of mounting climate risk. So, you know, more variable climate makes that high input system uh, less achievable. Um, sometimes it's because they're, they're getting influences such as pests and diseases that they can't easily manage or sometimes there's human health issues that they no longer feel comfortable about spraying lots of herbicides or fungicides around their farms and so there's lots of motivations for change. Um, so one of those examples which I think is a nice one is, is a, a process which is called pasture cropping. So it's, it's the idea that instead of just having say winter cereals like you know wheat and oats and barley um, or um, just pastures where you can graze your uh, you know, sheep and cattle, um, you can actually integrate these things. So in, in parts of Australia where there's sort of roughly even rainfall across winter and summer, uh, you can actually have your, your summer growing grasses, you know, so you can actually produce lots of uh, livestock feed, um, and then you can actually plant a winter growing crop in between those. Uh, so a very low input cropping system. And, uh, and that then gives you a, um, you know, a, a crop of wheat or barley or whatever you're growing. And, and because these are seasonally differentiated, they don't interfere with each other. They don't comp compete with each other. So you actually increase overall productivity on your system. Um, you're increasing your soil carbon content because you've got plants growing there all the time, pushing carbon into the soil. Uh, and you're evening out your income stream. So, so you're actually reducing your risk um, and, uh, and ensuring that you've got income both in the winter months and in the summer months. And, and so um, this is moving to lower input, but also much, much lower risk. And, and the people who have actually tried this actually are pretty happy about it because <clears throat> they actually find that um, it's a much, more, a much less stressful uh, um, existence they've got where they can actually invest with more confidence because there's lower risk, lower, lower problems on their farms. Yeah, that's really exciting to see that the ability to not only reduce inputs, but then also have these 
very significant benefits, both to soil, to the health, but also for the farmers themselves in terms of their economic livelihood. So that's really exciting. Uh, I want to shift gears a little bit. Um, I know um, we have, you've had decades of experience also participating in uh, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change and um, in, in various roles um, in, in terms of authoring and reviewing and, and um, editing these, these papers and publications. Obviously, the last few years have been devoted to uh, the sixth assessment. I was just wondering if you could just speak a little bit to your role and participation in that and some of some key findings on your end uh, from, from what you found in this, these reports. Yeah, thank, thanks, Shane. So the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, or the IPCC as it's often referred to, uh, is essentially the science body um, that brings climate science and related information to the UN governments, the governments of the world in essence. And, and so it's a very peculiar body because it's actually a governmental body, that's the intergovernmental part of it, um, but it's actually essentially run by the scientists. So the scientists are the authors and, and lead the processes and things. So it's an unusual partnership between um, science and government. And I think that's really important because if it was just a science organisation, most governments would ignore it. And that's that's the, the evidence across the globe is that science often gets ignored. Um, it's only when it's allied with, you know, financial analysis and uh, political opportunity, et cetera, that it tends to get um, taken notice of. Uh, so, so the fact that it's actually a, a partnership is actually, I think, really important. That it means that you can actually do that synthesis of you know, what we really understand, what's, what's the best scientific understanding of you know, the various aspects of climate change, uh, but it's also done in a way which governments own that information. So the summary for policymakers, for example, of each report um, is approved word by word and line by line um, by the governments of the world. You know, they actually own that text. And so uh, it's much harder for them to ignore it um, when they actually own it. Um, and so there's a really important bit of institutional design there that's uh, part of this. My role in, in this, this cycle um, is I'm what's called a, a vice chair of the working group two of uh, the IPCC. Working group two deals with uh, climate change impacts, um, adaptation to those impacts and vulnerability. And so uh, that role of the vice chair is particularly in terms of the overall direction uh, of the reports, uh, it's to ensure integrity of the process, um, both the internal and external aspects of that. Uh, and it's to uh, look at ensuring that uh, the focus of the work um, is actually appropriate for um, the expected um, user of that work, which is essentially policymakers, mostly in government, but increasingly elsewhere in the world. So in the corporate sector, in the non-government organization sector, and uh, um, you know, various others, community sector. So um, so we've got, a, I think, a very wide audience these days uh, for IPCC reports, and it's trying to ensure that uh, the reports are appropriate to that now quite broad audience. Yeah, and I actually had no idea that the the design of the, the organization was such that you wanted to both bring in the science and latest understanding of science, but then also with policymakers and that you almost kind of like leverage and hook in those governments to be able to say, there's some agency that you've approved this, this is your language. And in some ways there's an impetus now to act, right? That, that's, that's very clever, I think. I didn't realize that. Mm. It's one of one of the it's one of the um, fantastic things about the IPCC, and every now and again, it's one of the frustrating things about the IPCC. Yeah, I imagine having to get uh, agreement from all the different governments of the world it takes a lot of consensus building. <laughs> In, indeed, and uh, and and as you understand, there's there's different agendas that different governments have, um, but overall, I'm actually impressed by how. Uh, how we actually do land on the key messages. So, uh, so you know, ultimately the reports are faithful to the science, um, uh, but also at the same time useful to governments and others. Absolutely. And so maybe now is a good time if just to to hone in on what some of those key messages are. Obviously, you were in this latest cycle. You were particularly involved in working group two, which involves uh, impacts, 
adaptation and variability. And, and based on the conversation we've had in an increasingly variable climate, uh, there's probably more, more impacts and additional need to, to be uh, adjusting to that, right? Or adapting to that. So maybe if you could just speak to the messages, please. Sure. Um, so I'm, I'm actually perhaps the only person who's been involved in the four main pillars of IPCC. That's the climate science, the impacts and adaptation, the emission reduction, and the greenhouse gas inventory side of things. And so um, through this cycle, I've actually been working across all different aspects of, of, of the IPCC from, uh, from the very first special report on 1.5 degrees uh, through to um, the you know, forthcoming synthesis report. So I've actually had pretty broad uh, experience there. And, and so messages right across that sort of cycle, uh, I think key messages would be uh, that climate change is real um, and that humans are the cause. It's now essentially unequivocal that humans are driving up global temperature change. There is no uncertainty. So, so people who play on that, oh, it's all uncertain, it's all part of natural cycles. The scientific evidence is very clear now. It's not, you know, it's humans that are doing this uh, very, very clearly. Um, that there's very clear ev evidence that not only are the averages changing, but also the extremes are changing in many parts of the world. And so we're seeing uh, extreme events, um, you know, coming through, uh, you know, it, it sort of more rapidly in, in a sense than we previously predicted and, and, and in often cases more severely. So, so the changes are happening quite quickly. Um, and uh, there's good evidence now that those changes in climate are impacting on systems right across the world. So almost every island, every ocean, every continent uh, has evidence, some evidence of uh, climate change or every island group, I should say, not every island. Um, and, uh, and so those impacts are pervasive uh, of, of climate change uh, and, and related things like acidification of the oceans is, is you know, very broad spread. And uh, there's also increasing evidence um, that us as humans are taking action, uh, both in some circumstances by trying to reduce our greenhouse gas emission profiles, think renewable energy, electric cars, and that sort of thing, um, but also adapting to the climate changes that we're seeing. So we're seeing increased documentation of uh, people and institutions uh, recognizing the climate changes is changing and adapting to those changes. Uh, there's also though increasing evidence that that is not keeping up with the rates of change, um, that our adaptation isn't going as fast as the climate is changing. So there's a gap growing between rationally where we should be in terms of climate adaptation and where we are. Um, similarly, there's a gap growing between where we um, have said that we'd actually go in terms of emissions, so we should actually be reducing our greenhouse gas emissions across the globe, um, whereas in fact, we continue to increase them. So we're actually at record levels of greenhouse gas emissions of the key ones like carbon dioxide, methane, nitrous oxide. So, um, so there's, there's those elements, but there's also importantly throughout this uh, uh, IPCC cycle, um, we've tried to link these issues back to sustainable development. Uh, so how does climate change impact on sustainable development and the sustainable development goals? Um, and how do the sustainable development goals impact back onto climate change and adaptation and emission reduction? And, and so I think that's been one of the big uh, steps forward in terms of this IPCC cycle is that linkage to those broader development and sustainability issues that we have in front of us. Yeah, uh, lots of key messages, um, as, as, um, which is amazing to really hear about. Obviously some of them, as you alluded to, there are some significant gaps. So I guess there's work, a significant amount of work to be done. Um, but kind of walking through the messages, I think one thing that I'd be curious to understand, I was trying to review a little bit some of the, I, obviously it's a very significant body of work in terms of reading the IPCC report. So just reviewing parts of it, but it seems one area this cycle is, is really improved on is really identifying the, the um, I, I don't know if I'm describing it well, but the impact that, that humans are having of make, really understanding what impacts human behavior is having on the climate and being able to distinguish whether it's outside of like current parameters or it's kind of a new system. I don't know if I'm describing it the right way, but is that, is that fair? 
That's right. So that's broadly what we call attribution studies. Uh, so it's uh, how can we um, attribute or uh, sort of blame uh, climate change on some of the things we're observing. So, so one of those attribution studies would be that global temperature that I mentioned. So uh, you know, how much of that global temperature increase uh, would have happened in the absence of human influence through greenhouse gas emissions and land use change? Uh, and, and essentially, it's it's uh, you know the uh, the humans are now you know close to 100% of 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 what's going on. We can't just we can't uh, analyze and and define uh, a, a circumstance where that global temperature would have gone up simply through natural causes um, to the extent that we've observed. So it's it's human influence. Um, similar attribution studies have been done on extreme events. So attribution studies for hurricanes or cyclones, depending on where you are in the world, what you call them, or on fires or on heat waves and things like that. And many of those attribution studies uh, show that the likelihood of that event occurring um, is, is far, far greater because of human influence through climate change than, than the underlying sort of frequency or extent of those extreme events. And so, so those attribution studies are, are increasingly available and they're increasingly available at short notice. Um, so, so if you think back uh, a couple of years to that uh, Northwest heat dome event in Northwest uh, w, uh, USA and, and uh, British Columbia in Canada, um, there were attribution studies coming out which showed that this was all, all essentially almost impossible to occur in the absence of climate change almost at the same time as the event was happening. So almost in real time. So, so some of those attribution studies uh, can, can be done very quickly and very powerfully. Um, some other of those attribution studies uh, are, are less powerful simply because you're dealing with a, a, a more variable system, one that we don't quite understand as much. And, and things to do with rainfall are one example of that, where the models uh, don't simulate that as, as well as they simulate increases in temperature. Yeah, it's a fascinating concept, attribution, because I think I, I welcome your input on this, but, you know, we've spoken, at least in the, the general population, we hear a lot about average temperatures. We want to we stay below 1.5 degrees, and there are certain averages that are spoken about, but I think, and maybe it's just because we've been lacking the, the, the skill set and knowledge field to attribute extreme events, but really, it's also important to understand that you know, there could be some days where it's going to be three degrees, you know, or there's going to be a massive fire now because of this average that's been increasing. Do you have any kind of thoughts on that? Yeah, so the, there is a tendency to focus on averages. And from a policy perspective, you know, thinking Paris Agreement, you know, we're dealing with, you know, 1.5 degrees and two degrees above pre-industrial. So those are global average temperatures. And, and sitting amongst that average um, is a huge amount of variation so there's geographical variation because some places go up temperature wise faster than others so the land goes up a lot faster than the ocean surface for example um, so there's geographical variation uh, in in terms of that um, but there's also uh, variation uh, in terms of the uh, even though averages might go up what we're actually seeing is the extremes increasing a lot more so, so one way of thinking about this is if you think of, say, a temperature and a, a normal distribution, you know, so you've got the average, so you've got a sort of a peak in a distribution, then a, then a tail at either side, so it's sort of shaped like a bell. If it was only the averages that changed, that bell was simply moved to the right, you know, like to higher temperatures. Um, and as a result, we'd get more hot days because on average you're, you're shifting that distribution up into the hot zone uh, and you get more cold uh, so fewer cold days unfortunately what we're seeing is the average is moving up but also the ends of the distributions are moving but in both directions so we're getting far more um, hot days than we'd expect if it was just a change in the average and also in some parts of the world more cold conditions than we'd expect so that distribution is actually flattened out so it's shifted to the right on average higher temperatures, but it's actually flattened out. So we're getting a lot more really extreme hot days than we would have otherwise expected. And also in parts of the world, more cold weather than we would otherwise have expected. And so in different parts of the world, that cold is what we call sometimes the frost paradox. Um, 
that cold is caused by changes in uh, sort of what we call synoptic circulation patterns, the high pressure and low pressure systems. Um, so in Australia, that's why we're getting increased frost risk in southern Australia, and that happens in other parts of the world. Um, but in other parts of the world, such as in the US, um, some of those cold extremes are actually being driven by uh, changes in the polar vortex, the, um, uh, the big jet streams um, across uh, um, the Northern Hemisphere, uh, which because of climate changes in driven changes in the gradients of temperature, um, they're, they're wobbling a lot more and they're bringing extraordinary cold conditions uh, to places, you know, way south in the continent. And this is happening over in Europe and Eurasia and uh, East Asia as well. And so it's not just in the US. So, so you're getting places like, you know, Texas, which had, you know, a year or two ago at minus 18 degrees Celsius, I think was the number that sticks in my mind, which, you know, this is a place the same latitude as Sydney and, uh, you know, you'd never ever get minus 18 degrees Celsius in Sydney. And so you're getting these extreme cold events um, in some places um, and extreme hot events way beyond what would have happened if it was just a change in the average. Yeah, wow, I, I hadn't really thought about that. And I'm sure that makes it very difficult given the fact that there's a elongation or flattening of this distribution of events and increasing extremes, obviously with a slight shift towards higher temperatures, communicating that to the, the population must be really challenging because all of a sudden you, you have to think about heat waves and frosts and all these other things that it's not as simple as just everything's just getting slightly hotter, right? That's right. And so we have to have a more sophisticated debate than, uh, oh, it's just getting hotter. Um, and certainly a more sophisticated debate than, oh, it's all just part of a natural cycle. Because um, the evidence is, is pretty clear um, uh, that this is uh, extraordinary, what we're dealing with. Um, and, uh, and the degree of change is extraordinary. So, so people probably think, oh, two degrees, that's not much, uh, because you know, from a day-to-day -day perspective, the difference between 21 degrees Celsius and 23 degrees Celsius is not that much. You know, they're both very comfortable temperatures to go outside um, and, and do things with, um, as an example. But but on a global scale, two degrees is massive. Um, two, two degrees uh, is a, a big, big change, which if we keep it at two degrees, will fundamentally change the face of the earth. So as a rough rule of thumb, for every long-term increase in per degree Celsius, uh, we'll get something like a 12 meter rise in sea level over some thousands of years, if we keep it at one degree or and ditto, if we keep it at two degrees, you get a lot higher. So um, these changes are massive. You know, those sorts of changes in sea level will uh, cause huge, huge impacts right across the globe. Uh, and so, a lot of our conversation, for example, about sea level rise is truncated to this century, you know, what happens by 2100. But sea level rise will go up for centuries after that, even if we put a stop on greenhouse gas emissions right now. Um, and so, uh, so thinking long term, uh, there's really, really big changes associated with any, uh, you know, what sounds like small number. Um, and so, so two degrees is a really, really big number when it comes to, you know, the Earth system. And so we, we should be very aware to not underestimate the, the size of the changes that we're dealing with. Yeah, and I, you know, that here at 12 metres, of course, you know, one, one, one degree is, is, is 12 metres of sea level rise. That's, that's terrifying, actually. And so is there... I mean, I feel like that gets lost in translation. So is there is there kind of an impetus on decision makers, policymakers, scientists to say, like, how can there be improved communication to say these are the actual ramifications? 21 to 23 degrees doesn't seem too much on a day-to-day -day basis, but we need to think about it from a globe. Like, how do we how do we manage and navigate that challenge? Um, what you do is, well, what I try to do is, is embed uh, a discussion about climate change, which is an unknown for most people, um, into the things that they know about. So going back to the, the sort of the mountain uh, road analogy is that uh, um, when I've driven up that mountain road, I've actually driven over the road. So I know the road behind me, but I don't necessarily know the road ahead of me. And, and so by actually engaging people in a conversation about their experiences about climate, climate changes, climate variability, and how they manage that, 
uh, you can then move you know, from the known um, into the unknown, which is about what might happen in the future and how to manage that. And so, so from my perspective, um, we, we, when we're talking, say, with a government, uh, you, you, you move from uh, the, the current set of uh, understandings and knowledge and cultures and policies and regulatory environments and, you know, structures, uh, you know, national goals or national visions if they've got them. Uh, and then you talk about how climate change may impact on that and how those things may need to change to deal with climate change in a, in a sensible and rational and an informed way. And, and sometimes that's from a risk perspective because sometimes climate change brings bad things. And sometimes it's from a, an opportunity perspective because sometimes climate change brings up options. Um, and so, you know, as one example of opportunities, we'd be looking at the new, the transition to uh, green energy. Um, uh, so, yes, if you're a coal mine owner, that's probably a bad thing. But if you're actually <laughs> investing in uh, um you know, renewable energy and uh, and you know massive electricity storage. That's actually a great opportunity. Um, and so uh, the same thing that's happening, you know, the energy transition can be seen in completely different ways by different parties. And uh, and and part of our societies uh, is actually um, and and the role of politicians in our society is is how do you reconcile um, those different perspectives and and how do you move. Uh, the populace ahead um, instead of letting us lag in uh, a situation where, which is problematic, you know, just focusing backwards. Yeah. Um, and I think that's a, that's a great approach of <clears throat> trying to make these changes at the macro level much more tangible. And that can be even, obviously the scale can vary, but it could be there at a country scale, state, region or neighborhood, making it really tangible and saying, you know, this is, certain impacts and challenges or opportunities that can arise given the wealth of information that we have. So does that, does that tie into the efforts a little bit? You know, you mentioned that this latest cycle for the IPCC is, is focusing or trying to tie it to the sustainable development goals. Is that kind of the way you're alluding to is, is balancing those two things? I think it's because recognizing that um, climate change doesn't happen in isolation. Uh, so, um, you know, what I talked about just before about the energy transition is that energy transition probably would have happened anyway um, uh, because renewable energy is cheaper and cleaner, uh, more reliable in many situations uh, than the old fossil fuel-based um, system that we've left behind. And uh, and so, so that transition would have happened simply because of economics and environmental and health concerns anyway. Um, but climate change is accelerating that. So the fact that we have to really put a big, big foot on the brakes in terms of greenhouse gas emissions over the next decade or two is really um, pumping up the speed of that energy transition. So climate change doesn't fundamentally change that, uh, you know, the direction we're going, um, but it does change the rate at which we're going down some of these things. Um, in other circumstances, uh, climate change brings in a completely new factor. So, um, you know, for example, dealing with sea level rise is that um, in the absence of climate change, we wouldn't have to deal with that. And so, so that's a factor which is, is completely new and needs to be taken into account accordingly. Um, so, so a lot of the challenge here is actually one of transition. It's, it's moving from where we have been and, and our expectations of things um, uh, towards moving to, to a, a different environment um, where our expectations may need to change and our rules and regulations may need to change, similar with technology and, and things like that. And, and also recognising that climate change is, is not a... Um, it's not a, a destination, <laughs> you know, it's essentially a journey to sort of use that analogy is that um, if we're at all right with this, we're going to be dealing with this for decades to centuries, um, our, our climate is going to continue to change. Now, whether it changes, uh, you know, temperature keeps on going up and we have to deal with that or whether it's the change in terms of turning that downwards so that we actually put a cap on climate change, um, each of those will con require continuing change, continuing adjustment, um, but they're very different types of adjustment. Uh, 
on the one hand, if we let climate change rip, we're going to have to put a lot more effort into an adaptation to climate change. So, you know, building up seawalls and adapting our agriculture and all that sort of stuff. Um, whereas if in fact we get on top of climate change, we'll, we'll have less of an adaptation challenge, um, but more of an emission reduction challenge. And so, uh, so depending on which trajectory we go, we, we've got different you know, trajectories of change, things we, we've got to deal with. I really, uh, I, uh, I really appreciate that framework of, of viewing it as not necessarily an end, but a transition and a journey. And there are different levels, levels, excuse me, levers that we can pull, whether it's mitigation, adaptation, and so forth. So I'm wondering for, and in some ways, I mean, this transition is, is scary, right? It can be very concerning. It's a lot of unknowns as we just discussed. And so for the audience that's listening and wants to either become more informed or understand how they can make an influence in addressing whether it's adaptation or mitigation or whatever is important to them, do you have any suggestions of what they can, you know, in terms of a sense of agency and action? Yeah, I think um, we do have agency as individuals. Um, and of course, that differs dramatically across different national contexts and social contexts. But, but nevertheless, um, essentially, all greenhouse gases um, are produced um, in a way that sheets it home to a consumer at somewhere across the globe. So, um, you know, the, the electricity from, say, a coal-fired power station, um, those emissions, in a sense, get sheeted home to the people who use that electricity. Um, and and so, so, in a sense, we're all responsible for climate change. We all are greenhouse gas emitting animals. And, uh, and so, even in the, uh, you know, lowest emission developing country, uh, they still have an emissions profile per person. It's just hugely smaller than you know, a person in a developed country. The, um, so, so there is, a, in a sense, um, uh, the opportunity for each of us to look at our greenhouse gas emission profile and try to reduce that in, in sensible ways, you know, not trying to, you know, push us backwards in terms of social development. Um, and that's, that individual action is important. Um, but at the same time, I think we need to recognise that there are, there's, um, individual action by itself will not actually reduce the emissions at the rate and scale that we need. Um, and so one of the other things I think we can do as individuals is push up to government and say, you know, we want more, we want more action, um, we want sensible action that, that actually generates other benefits in the process, um, and push up to industry and say, you know, we expect better. Um, we want products that have a lower greenhouse gas emissions footprint, which are demonstrably sustainable in their production, uh, etc. And uh, in many cases, businesses started to recognise this and started to see price premiums, for example, in terms of uh, you know products that meet these sort of consumer standards, uh, and opening up new markets such as. Uh, uh, you know, non-meat, um, you know, meat replacement products, uh, um, where there's an opening niche for people to to actually get something that tastes like meat but doesn't have the same environmental footprint and greenhouse gas footprint. So, um, by being uh, proactive and looking forward, you know, there can be opportunities by um, by companies by responding to consumer demand and sometimes uh, opening up consumer demand. You know, so creating new markets. So, so I think as individuals, we can we can get our own house in order. We can push upwards into the system to get appropriate change and appropriate uh, regulatory and, and other changes. Um, but we can also uh, communicate with other people. We can get informed um, ourselves about what's going on, and then talk to other people. You know, talk with our family, talk with our friends, talk with our uh, work colleagues, the people you play tennis with or go hiking with or whatever. Um, and in particular. Talk to the people who aren't on the same wavelength, those people who are wavering and thinking, oh, I'm not sure about climate change, I'm not really convinced. Um, they're actually much more worth talking to than the people who are already convinced and already taking action. Um, and so, so talk with the people who are able to have a sensible conversation with you. And, and I say that because there's some people around 
who you simply can't have a sensible conversation with. No amount of evidence is going to change their mind. Uh, no amount of rational argument is going to change their position. And uh, in those circumstances, change has to happen <clears throat> or change most ha likely happens from their peers. So they'll actually change their position when they see the same people who they respect and who they think have similar views to them when they change. So, so, um, so there's some people who it's, it's profitable to talk with um, and, and have a discussion and some people who it will probably take quite a while for them to actually come on board and re recognize what's happening around them. I love that. I think the, those are three, the themes of individual action and agency I use the word, I think, phrase push up. I like that, pushing up to government and business and, and having more of a systemic impact and role. And then also communication. These are all tension themes that we've been definitely discussed in the previous seasons. And so I appreciate that you highlight them as, as being effective things that the audience can do. Um, Professor, thank you very much for your time. Uh, I really appreciate it. I think uh, learned a lot and I'm really excited to take these steps uh, on this journey that we have our transition that we have to be able to, uh, you know, make an impact and, and address this, this, these big forces. Um, absolute pleasure, Shane. And I, I wish you all, all the best with your um, podcasts and, and with your career. Thank you. Hi everyone, hope you enjoyed the conversation with Professor Mark Howden. Uh, I thought it was really uh, great to understand, um, well, a whole range of topics, but really understanding his approach to the systems thinking, how it influences specifically the food system, which has so many different parameters that goes into growing food and not, not to mention distributing it and, and bringing it to the people that need it. Uh, but also really understanding uh, the, the concept of climate variability, not only focusing on averages, but the fact that variability, whether it's temperature, rainfall, other factors really are increasing in, in their intensity and variability because of climate change. Uh, and really, I think a w great way to summarize the, the episode is what everyone can be doing at this point. It's three broad things. Obviously, we can do things at the individual level. We can do things by uh, pushing up to government, large systems change, and really to communicate. And that was the focus really for this uh, this general podcast and, and, and to be able to convey that communication. So if you're listening to this, go, you know, go, go forth, talk about these things. These are important to topics to be discussing climate change. Um, obviously the, uh, one of the top ones that we're all facing right now. So I hope you enjoy the episode. Next one, we're going to be focusing specifically on the physical science of oceans broadly, big topic. Um, but I'm really excited to be able to focus to bring that to you and uh, looking forward to it. Hope you have a good week.